Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Hello and welcome to the Overdue Podcast, Episode 11. I'm Kelly, and with me today are my fellow Madison College librarians, Mark. Hello. Dana. Hi there. And Christina. Hello, everyone. Our special guest today is Madison College history instructor and popular culture expert of Wisconsin Public Radio, Jonathan Pollock. How's it going, eh? Good. (laughs) (laughs) The title of today's episode is Looking for Happy Days and Making America Great Again, Nostalgia in Television and Film. We'll also have trivial observations with Mark and our Anything Goes recommendations. Mark? Our first segment today uh, gives us a chance to find out a little bit more about Jonathan. It's called 30 Second Thoughts, and we're going to give brief little topics about uh, things in Jonathan's life or related to his life. And uh, we'd like him to give us uh, 30 seconds or a little bit more his uh, thoughts on a topic. And he is welcome at any time to say pass if he's uncomfortable with a topic. <laughs> And we'll go round robin here, and um, I'll start with Yid Vicious. Okay, so that's the band that I was in from uh, 1997 to 2002. Uh, Klezmer band, still based here in Madison, still going uh, after all these years. Um, yeah, I um, I hadn't played Klezmer before. I'd had a Klezmer band at my wedding. I had some uh, uh, records I inherited from my great-grandfather uh, in that style. And uh, yeah, it was five great years. Uh, we released a couple of CDs. I wrote the liner notes for the second one, peak moment in my career, getting the right liner notes, and uh, yeah, I should definitely go check them out. Any right. thoughts of jumping back in at any point? Not especially. I I mean, I started working, uh, so I was in grad school when I joined the band, and then I got my job here in the fall of 98. So uh, for those last four years I was in it, I was kind of juggling the band as they were getting more gigs, and my job here, which was becoming more complex, and my sure. kids were both small at that point. And I found that I was... Uh, instead of grading papers, I was thinking about the logistics for like upcoming gigs and how I'd get my drums here and where I'd store them and how I'd get to Milwaukee and when I'd get back. And then I was on the gig, like in the middle of a song, my mind would be wandering and be thinking about, okay, so I've got to grade this number of papers when I get mm-hmm. home and I've got to prepare this lecture. And it was just, it was too much. I couldn't do both of them. Sure. Uh, the band also has just, uh, I mean, their drummer is phenomenal. Uh, that's, that's what I play as drums. Uh, the guy replaced me as a he's a percussion genius, and I could I could woodshed for years and never <laughs> approach him. So right. if they call me for a sub job, I'll do it. But otherwise, not happening. All right, All right. Uh, I'll go next. Um, traveling with kids. Traveling with kids. Um, it's great. Uh, my kids are awesome travelers. Um, they uh, my my family and my wife's family are all out of state, so going to see grandma and grandpa on either side, and often involved a long car trip or a plane ride. And uh, yeah, they've got they've got better inner ears than I do. Um, <laughs> they're you know they're like old enough that they're kind of booking their own tickets now and figuring out travel plans. Uh, it's been that's been great. Okay. <laughs> um, UW Center for Jewish Studies. Okay, yeah. So I've been affiliated with them uh, since uh, 2012, 2013, mm-hmm. I want to say. Um, I, uh, my research is on um, Jewish life in the Midwest, uh, and I've written a couple articles on Jewish uh, community at UW in specific. 
Um, so yeah, a few years ago, they asked if I wanted this honorary affiliation with them. Uh, it gives me a UW library card, and I can buy a UW bus pass. And, uh, so, so I'm in. Um, and yeah, and I get to, in fact, tonight I'm going to a, a lecture at the Center for Jewish Studies, uh, Roger Horowitz from the Hagley Museum of Delaware. Uh, he's talking about his book, Kosher USA. Um, and said also, they invite me to dinner if they're taking the speaker out, and I'm going to another dinner with like the department's board of visitors tomorrow night. Um, so yeah, it's a really nice little arrangement. Cool. Awesome. Are they still in Ingram Hall? They're not. Okay. No, they've moved. Uh, they're now uh, in humanities. Oh, interesting. Uh, kind okay. of stepped down room wise. Mm. Honestly, they're kind of where if you knew where if you went to UW in the 1990s or yeah in the 90s in the early 90s or earlier. Uh, they're kind of at the edge of where Afro-American studies used to be. Yep. So at the end of that hallway on fourth floor is gotcha. where the department offices are now. All right. Do you want to tell us about Voices of the People book? Voices of the People, yeah. Oh, sad story. It just went oh, out of print. No. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. It was uh, my friend John Reese and I. Um, we were in grad school together. We both did labor history. Um, John teaches labor history at uh, Colorado State Pueblo out in Colorado, and uh, there were no good document readers out there. And so he asked if I wanted to collaborate on one. Uh, we wrote that. It was like three, four years that came together, like editing documents and writing the intros. Publisher of his textbook uh, liked the idea, so they, they published it. They got bought out by, I want to say, Wiley, one of the big publishers. Okay, yeah. We were amazed that Wiley picked it up. <laughs> it took <laughs> us forever to get any royalties off that because we had to pay so much in permissions. Yeah. Um, but eventually we did get royalties, and I had the, the pleasure of being at a conference with, with JR, uh, with John, and uh, we were talking about something, and somebody recognized us from our jacket photo. Oh, okay. And she's like, wait, Jonathan Pollock, Jonathan Reese, I use your textbook. And we're like, what? <laughs> that was great. Would you sign it for and, us? And then just uh, just like a month ago, I got an email from somebody who asked if I had a PDF copy and uh, because the book is now out of print and he's been using it for years. And I was really sad. And I'm like, I, I, I mean, that book came out in 2003, 2004, yeah. so it's been forever. And I'd be I'd be amazed if I made $1,000 on mm-hmm. it. I mean, I didn't get paid squat, but I still like... <laughs> it's out of print. So, yeah, that's okay. the story there. All right. We'll have to make sure our yeah. copy doesn't disappear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, people are going to be snapping. It's going to wind up on eBay. Yeah. It's going to be frightening. Hundreds of dollars. Yeah. <laughs> now out of print. No. All right. Okay, I'm going to give you a choice. Um, favorite sports team or sports tribalism? Oh, favorite sports team. Um Man, I'm such a weird Fairweather fan. Well, actually, i got to say, my favorite sports team is actually what I'm supporting today in honor of uh, of Alumni Day. We're supposed to wear, like, our shirts because it's transfer week and stuff like that. So I'm a proud graduate of the University of Michigan, class Go of 1990. Blue. Go Blue. Um, yeah, so so Michigan sports teams always tune in and watch. Uh, uh, Harbaugh, I think, is a, is a hilarious coach. Uh, his phrase... Um, attacking today with an intensity known to mankind is <laughs> like great. one of my favorite things. He is very entertaining. <laughs> I use that like in in classes sometimes. With sure. An extra cup of coffee beforehand. I'll talk <laughs> about that in the line of uh, Jim Harbaugh, who was actually at. He was a senior at Michigan when I was a freshman there. Really? So right. I had uh, there were uh, girls who were friends of mine were uh, lived in my dorm would like go to this one bar on campus and try to like meet where he would like hang out and stuff like that. So <laughs> I remember him when. Didn't Schimbachler basically yell at him all the time? Um, I think Shem Beckler yelled at everybody, everybody all the time. Yeah. That's what he did. Okay. That was his. That was his whole technique. Was he just yell at people? Um, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, he, he definitely did. Okay. All right. Um, your favorite television show as a kid? Favorite television show as a kid. Um, 
It's well, okay. So we're going to talk about some later. So I'll say a different one. HR Puff and Stuff. Oh, um, oh my God! Oh, we've got people here who watch Puff and Stuff. It's on for like three years. You got to be like a very specific age to have watched HR Puff and Stuff. Yeah, it was great. It was the, and I, I watched it when my, uh, I don't know, my kids were about the age when they were like maybe four and eight or something like that, or five and nine. Um, I found it at our public library, had it on DVD, and so I brought it home and scared the bejesus out of them. <laughs> it's like, what Are is going on? So the, the premise is you've got this, it's a Sid and Marty Croft show, and their, their thing was they had like these huge, like human-sized puppets. That looked like they were designed okay. by somebody who was tripping on mm-hmm. bad acid. And they probably were. And, <laughs> and so H.R. Puff and Stuff is a sort of like dragon that looks kind of like a mushroom or arguably like a very penis. A and he's like really, <laughs> and there's Hello. this, and, yeah, and, uh, and and there's like, there's this boy who's on this, there's this is one like real life human character in the songs of the puppets. I had such a crush on Jack Wilde. Yeah, was Jack Wilde was the guy. I crush on him. And, and he had like this talking flute that would talk Freddy. to him. Freddie, uh, yeah, and there was uh, there was this witch that was always trying to like do stuff to him, witchy poo, witchy right. poo, yeah. and uh, yeah, it was just oh, I loved that show as a kid, and and my kids just found it so disturbing, and I found oh. it pretty disturbing also when I watched it. And I, I was loved, like, I absolutely, how did I watch it. this? But yeah, it was a great show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dana, if you haven't seen it, you have to I'm going to have to YouTube it. Yeah. yeah, there was actually there was something the AV Club I think earlier this week did a thing about the. Um, about the Brady Bunch variety show in the seventies, okay. Sid and Marty Croft produced that. Really, and I think there's an HR Puff and Stuff segment. So if you okay. don't want to like start out with an entire twenty-two minute episode, if you find the AB Club, you can find it on there. And there's like the one HR Puff and Stuff bit. It's plenty strange. That's a great choice. That'll that'll give you a good idea what's going on there. Good show. Cool. All right, my next one is one people have very divisive opinions on Coasties. Oh, Coast, yeah, so this is like, uh, this is kind of one of the articles I wrote, uh, the kind of first article I wrote on this. Uh, so I, uh, I taught American Jewish history for a couple semesters when I was still a grad student, and um, probably the best received lecture I gave was on um, the beginnings of Jewish students from the New York area coming out to Wisconsin starting mm-hmm. in the 1920s. Um, there are already rifts both between students from New York and, Wisconsin, and the Wisconsin population generally, and even like within the campus Jewish community was starting to form. Uh, the Jewish students from the Midwest and from New York had kind of different cultural styles and disagreed, especially about how to deal with anti-Semitism. So this article came out and um, it was published in American Jewish History. It's an academic journal in 2001. Um, then uh, a friend of mine, uh, now a friend of mine who I didn't really know up to this point, uh, Jordan Rosenblum, teaches uh, Intro to Judaism, Judaism at UW. He's a scholar on, uh, on rabbinics, on like, the creation of the Talmud. Uh, so Jordan teaches Intro to Judaism, and he told his CA to find... Uh, for the last reading in class, find something like sort of current and maybe that deals with Wisconsin somehow. Uh, Jordan's from Rhode Island. He doesn't know from Wisconsin. His TA found my article, and he's like, oh, this is perfect. And so he assigned it. And when the whole Coastie thing blew up um, in, uh, was that, like 2010, mm-hmm. 2011, yep. um, like like area media started calling him. Oh, wow. And so he would, you know, kind of answer the first request. And after a while, he's like, look, I'm, you know, I'm not even tenured yet. And my specialties on, like, people who lived, like, 1,800 years ago. But apparently <laughs> the guy who wrote the article I talk about all the time teaches at MATC. Maybe wow. you should call him. <laughs> so I started getting some calls. And that's kind of what got me involved with the Center for Jewish Studies, oh, that I, wow. I served on a panel with them talking about uh, Coasties in, I think, fall of 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I got, uh, I got sort of five minutes of fame off of that. 
Do you want to discuss Built on Scrap? <laughs> sure. Yeah, so uh, 2007, uh, back when uh, sabbaticals were still a thing here uh, for faculty, uh, I got a sabbatical. Uh, I actually wanted to do some research along the lines of, of Jewish community life here, but you know, we don't do book learning at this college. So that was shot down. Um, so uh, I looked at the things that got funded, and they were all in the arts. Mm. It's kind of an odd thing about our sabbatical system. It's like you do whatever you want as long as it's art. So it's like, okay, so um, I've always loved low-budget movies, and so I decided to make one. Um, and so I thought, well, I could do some research and, like, make a documentary out of it. Like, how hard could that be? It's freaking impossible to do. It was really hard. I was talking to Mark ahead of time. The sound design is trash. We really made some mistakes and didn't have time to go back and reshoot. Uh, I think the, the students who worked on it with me, like, hated me afterwards. Um, it was really not, not my brightest moment. But I, I did make, uh, it's about an 18-minute film on uh, scrap dealers, uh, Jewish scrap dealers in southern mm-hmm. Wisconsin, in particular in Madison and Fort Atkinson, um, and uh, learned a lot about filmmaking, learned a lot about scrap materials. Uh, we had a little premiere here back in a way earlier iteration of the library. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it was a fun project. Uh, anybody listening to this podcast wants one, let me know and I'll set you up. I got like okay. 45 of them left in my family room. <laughs> All right. We're using them as, as, as drink coasters, but you're welcome yeah. to actually view the things. And we still have a copy in the library. Oh, Fantastic. Great. And our next segment. Our main segment for today, looking for happy days and making America great again, nostalgia in television and film. The first talking point In 2014, there was an article in the Journal of Popular Film and Television with the title, Broadcasting the Past, History, Television, Nostalgia Culture, and the Emergence of the Miniseries in 1970s United States. In it, the author argued that through shows like Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Little House on the Prairie, and The Waltons, the 1970s ushered in the era of nostalgia culture that exists even to today. Instead of true realism, though, these shows offered an emotional realism seeking effective identification in viewers. Um, okay, so I, I, I agree with this premise. I mean, I'm glad it was an article. I was like, oh, I could write that article someday. So <laughs> to it, whatever, cross off the list, move on to something else. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that's uh, I, I think that's pretty fair to say. Um, I mean, I think you know, so to to have something to argue with about it, and because I haven't read the article in advance, so I can't go into more detail about their and examples. We apologize and so for forth. That. Not <laughs> getting an article to you in advance. <laughs> I was yes. like, had I known, you know, I would have done the reading. <laughs> Uh, but uh, but yeah, since I can't really you know dig in the specifics of this article, uh, the one thing I'm thinking about though is that there's a, a big nostalgia wave in uh, 20th century TV culture long before that. Uh, I mean, the genre of the western right. is like totally nostalgic, sure. um, and that one of the ways uh, the phrase emotional realism is getting into psychology there, which I really know nothing about. But I would say uh, like one of the things when looking at, at nostalgia through like a historical kind of lens. Uh, it's always kind of weird because when you get closer to it, you realize you don't actually know what era it's taking place in. I mean, the uh, on the show Happy Days, um, you know, the it looks realistic because the props are all from the 50s. That when I was a little kid and I watched that show with my parents, uh, they would say, oh, wow, we had that couch or we had a TV set that looked like that. Or my mom wore like one of Joni's outfits. And, and that was kind of like, okay, it's realistic. But then my parents especially like would point out... Um, 
how uh, how people in the show like behaved like people in the 70s, the way mm. that kids treated their parents, mm. the way that uh, the Cunningham family just sort of welcomed Fonzie in, who was obviously from a lower social class than the middle class Cunninghams, and they're just like, yeah, sure, live over our garage and come, you know, come into our house. <laughs> hang out with our kids. Hang out with our kids <laughs> and eat out of our refrigerator. My, my, my dad was like, that would never have happened. That's so far off. The Cunninghams would have, like, double-locked their doors to avoid people like Fonzie. Mm-hmm. So uh, so it's like you sort of wonder, like, well, is this actually a show in the 70s and everybody's just, like, really a collector of 50s culture and they're yeah. trying to live in that world? It's kind of strange. The same things earlier. Uh, so before the 1950s, really starting with the explosion of television in the 50s, you got Westerns all over the place. Westerns yeah. had been a staple of movie programming going back to the silent era, uh, going back to some of the first films shot were westerns. The first film with a plot, The Great Train Robbery from 1903. Right. It's a western. And the westerns also, you know, you watch enough of them, and if you're taking a, a class that deals with the history of the American West or Native American history, and so you're just like, okay, when was this particular film shot? Like, it's incoherent. You don't know. Um, it's like, well, there's a train involved, so it's got to be after this period of time, mm-hmm. but there's still you know, doing this alongside, so it's earlier, but they have telephones. So, okay, it's post-1876, and by the end of it, it's just, it takes place entirely out of time. Um, so that, for me, is the um, is the guy that we're looking at in nostalgia culture, is that when the, when the, the historical landmarks, like, each alone could be dated to something, you know, or they're referring to the Civil War having been over. Okay, great, we've got that. Or New Mexico is still a territory. All right, we've got that. Oh, but California is still a territory. No, New Mexico was a state in 1912, and California was a state in 1849. What? You can't really look at the details. Yeah, you can't look at the details. And so that's the way that, um, I mean, the nostalgia also, and I think television more generally, and, and film, the reason I kind of like using them as historical sources is, sounds like in line with this article, it's not for their realism, it's for their sort of dreamlike state. Mm. That if we want to understand how people understand the past or understood the, understood the more distant past in a time before ours, um, television shows are a great way of doing that. That you, you see how people are kind of smearing the details together and despite the historical weirdness of Westerns, if you watch a Western from... Uh, 1910 and you watch another western from 1950 and another one from 1970 you can kind of see all right what are the attitudes in this western toward native american characters how are the native american characters portrayed that's a pretty basic one or what's the relationship between men and women how is that evolving over time Uh, how are the characters becoming more complex or 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 more realistic or, or, or less realistic um and so in that sense, I think they're still really, that the nostalgic TV products are still really valuable uh, historical resources. You just have to be kind of tricky about how you use them, ask these other questions, and kind of look at them uh, a little more carefully. But yeah, the nostalgia, going back to the talking point, um, nostalgia in television kind of goes way back. Uh, it goes back to the birth of the medium uh, through the Westerns. And Westerns persist in the 60s. I mean, so they stopped recycling old movie Westerns. You got Gunsmoke, and you got Bonanza. Right that people don't talk about a whole lot anymore, but they were hugely popular shows. I mean, they were like number one and two in the ratings for years. A lot of people watched those. Um, Other kind, you could look at, uh, you could look at shows like, um, like the rural sitcoms on, on CBS here, Beverly Hillbillies, Petticoat Junction, Green Acres, Green Acres, (laughs) uh, like Andy Griffith. I mean, all of these, they, they, they were set contemporaneously. I mean, Andy Griffith drove a relatively late model car, 
and you know Green Acres had like a state of the art swimming pool, or uh, Beverly Hillbillies had like a state of the art right. swimming pool and stuff like that. Cement pond. Yeah, cement <laughs> pond. Uh, but in the way that they kind of, for the characters who are like in the foreground, they were kind of intended to be characters who were kind of like brought abruptly into the into the present, or in the case of Green Acres. Um, actively trying to get back to the past, trying right. to flee city life for what they had had before in the country. Um, or what they'd never had. Or what they'd never had, yeah. <laughs> what they wish they had had. Right, right? exactly. Um, and again, part of nostalgia, part of what makes nostalgia distinct from history. Um, so uh, those are other examples of nostalgia, I think, in television before the 70s. But yeah, uh, Happy Days, where I think Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley really came in, and, and here the, the author, as soon as you're talking about Little House on the Prairie and the Waltons, earlier in the 20th century and the 19th century. Uh, what I think is really interesting about Happy Days in the Vernon Shirley is like, is like 50s nostalgia in specific, but that's mm-hmm. all over the 1970s. You've got mm-hmm. those shows, mm-hmm. you've got Grease, uh, you've got the career of Sha Na Na, like the world's most successful <laughs> cover band. You know, Sha Na Na didn't do their own material. It was all 50s covers. Um, People so, were just trying to forget the 1960s altogether. Yeah, right. It's like you could. So right then, that's like a second level question. It's like, well, why was it, and why were the 60s being skipped over, and so forth? So yeah, for me, it's like. So I guess. All right. So thanks. You helped me figure out what my angle is, so I can use this and the I can read this as I write my article about 50s nostalgia, specifically in the 70s. And I'll be I always imagine the the writers of Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley were people that had grown up in the 50s, and it was this very idyllic suburban, mom stays at home, uh, everything's fine, we don't have to deal with the Cold War, or everything's perfect. I think think you're probably right. I mean, I'm thinking about, uh, like, I don't don't think he was one of the writers for the show, Uh, Gary Marshall, who's like one of the creators of Happy Days, and uh, Penny Marshall's uh, brother, I guess, um, from Laverne and Shirley. So, yeah, I mean, I'm thinking he died just recently, and he was, like, I want to say in his 80s. And so, yeah, so in the 50s, he would have been, you know, he would have been, like, 20 years old or so, Mm -hmm. and just getting a start. I think he wrote for a few 50s TV shows, and his career in television goes back that far. Um, And, uh, yeah, so I think, you know, if Marshall is an example, I mean, the other... um, you know, uh, 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 Babalu Mandel and the other people who wrote for Happy Days. I don't know exactly how old they were, but yeah, I mean that's a yeah. that's a pretty fair bet. Um, that it was really their nostalgia that was that was up there, and um, and uh, that there were lots of people who had um, who had the same memories. All right. And before we get on to the next talking point, a follow-up question. And first of all, I, I sincerely <laughs> apologize for not getting that article to you before. Um, so that uh, so much for podcast. Uh, planning. <laughs> uh, a quick follow-up to that. Um, yeah. Do you think some people, people were entertained by Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley and the, the other shows. Do you think some people identified more heavily with the shows in reaction to shows like All in the Family and Good Times that were also on in the area during that era? Or? Great question. Um, yeah, I mean, that's definitely a different vision of television. I mean, uh, uh, All in the Family and, and Good Times um, Sanford and Son, to a lesser mm-hmm. extent, I think less successfully. Um, yeah, those were all uh, shows created by Norman Lear, who um, saw a lot of potential in television to be, um, saw potential for television to address present-day social issues head-on. Um, that uh, some of his like uh, Maud, I remember, and All in the Family later on, as I you know saw it in reruns when I was older. I was watching. I was just like, "There is a dang issue every single time." <laughs> you know, it's just like it's like this is this is the abortion show, and right. this is right. the war show, and this is the veterans show. It's just like you know, it's like 
kind of in your face. One day at a time was like the same exactly. way. It was just like, and the characters are just sort of on a soapbox directing, you know, directly <laughs> addressing the audience. This is a problem, you know. Um, and Happy Days obviously is something very different. Um, yeah, I, I think that's part. I think that was kind of a counter-programming strategy. Yeah. They're on different networks. Most of the shows I named, I believe, were on CBS or NBC. Uh, Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley really made ABC into more right. of a powerhouse network. Um, and uh, yeah, they're a way of kind of uh, of kind of counter-programming, of, of trying to target a different demographic. Um, and uh, you know, given the, I'd say given also, and I don't know if this is going to like take us way off track and you know just kind of toss your talking points, but. Um, one of the things I, I think about nostalgia is that nostalgia is, um, is I think, by its nature, politically conservative. You know, it's, I mean, if we look at a very basic kind of neutral definition of conservative, we talk about conservatives are people who want to keep things the way they were, people who value tradition and value the way we've always done things and are very skeptical of changes and especially like radical or abrupt changes, then nostalgia, it really reinforces conservatism. I mean, the base of nostalgia is... Uh, like in the words of another 70s artist, Meatloaf, in a kind of nostalgic <laughs> song, Paradise by the Dashboard Light, it was long ago, and it was far away, and it was so much better than it is today. Oh. It's like perfect nostalgia that's, statement. That's yeah. great. And, um, and so if Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley and, and Grease and these other kind of nostalgia products of the 70s are putting forth that message, it was long ago, and it was far away, and it was so much better than it is today, that's the opposite of Norman Lear's shows. You know, the... Uh, all in the family and one day at a time Sanford and Son the Jeffersons and Maud and all of them it's like the idea is the show is ripped from today's headlines but we're working it into like the comedy um, so uh, yeah so it's a very different vision and and I would say a uh, a more conservative vision and in some ways uh, if we had like a, I don't know a two hour podcast we could probably put together <laughs> we'll have bonus content <laughs> we could put together like you know more specific ways that um, more specific connections between like nostalgic television and the the more specific like conservative movement in American politics, uh, beginning roughly at this time. I mean the you know the the stirrings of the, of the political revolution that brought Ronald Reagan to power in 1980, um, and uh, and the and the conservative Sunbelt wing of the Republican Party along with it. That's all getting started right here in the late 70s with Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley at the top of the Nielsen ratings. So Hopefully we can get you on as a guest again. And, uh, sure. Why the heck that. not? Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> Happy to do it. All right. So my talking point, uh, I was just, it, now uh, there's so many articles about how we're living in the second golden age of television and stuff. And I kind of beg to differ. <laughs> and here's why. I will, um, I'm just going to give you a rundown of the top 11 shows, and there's a reason there's 11, <laughs> um, for the 2015-2016 uh, season, uh, from number 1 to 11, we have NCIS, Sunday Night Football, The Big Bang Theory, Thursday Night Football, Empire, NCIS New Orleans, <sighs> Dancing with the Stars, Blue Bloods, the Voice on Monday night, tied with The X-Files. Then we have Grey's Anatomy tied with The Voice on Tuesday night. And the reason I did that is um, then I wanted to go to 1974-75 season. And the reason 74 was because that was the year um, Happy Days came out. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason it was uh, the top 11 shows is I didn't want to leave Mary Tyler Moore out on 11. <laughs> so, but at number one, we had All in the Family, Sanford and Son, Chico and the Man, The Jeffersons, MASH, Rhoda, 
Good Times, The Waltons, Maud, Hawaii Five O, and The Mary Tyler Moore Show. Three of the shows had women's names. Mary Tyler Moore was single. Rhoda was uh, single at first, and she was also Jewish. Uh, and then Maud was middle-aged and thrice divorced. So this was pretty shocking for the time, given that we had just come out of the 50s and 60s. And four of the shows um, had mostly minority casts. Um, Good Times had the entire cast was minority. And Chico and the Man was set in a Mexican-American neighborhood in L.A. And pretty much all the shows were about American working class. And talk about reality shows, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Anyway, the two shows that were the outliers were um, MASH, Mm -hmm. uh, which was set in the Korean War, but really they were talking about the Vietnam War. And the Waltons, which was uh, the depression never looked so cozy, huh? <laughs> so, um, but anyway, uh, just to get people talking about, uh, you know, what these shows. They're, they're definitely, as Jonathan pointed out in, with the um, first talking point, they're not addressing uncomfortable right. issues. Exactly. The voice might have, uh, you know, multicultural right. people on it, but nobody's singing about uh, exactly uh, yeah. poverty or... Yeah, I mean, well, talent shows, I mean, like The Voice, what I think is fascinating there is that those were some of the earliest, earliest TV, like TV in the late 40s and early 50s. You had Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts. You had, you know, shows where people did essentially the same thing, where they're like random people from around the country (laughs) who could sing or tell jokes or something. Different variety shows had different, you know, themes. Some were more open than others. Uh, but the fact that, uh, you know, almost that 70 years after the beginning of television, we're still like, tuning into variety shows. I mean, but that's, look how popular they that's are. That's hilarious. It's, it's, um, they've got it on Monday night and Tuesday. Yeah, night. and they went away for a long time and they, and they came back in. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think part of, uh, part of television, uh, part of the quality of television, I think, is also, um, is also kind of profoundly nostalgic, even if the content itself is not set in the past and trying to be nostalgic. Mm-hmm. That, um, I mean, I, I think, Kelly, like you were saying about uh, the creators of Happy Days, and you were wondering, well, did they have, like, an especially pleasant time in the 50s, and that's why <laughs> they made a show about it later on. Um, I mean, I think that's the same thing for consumers of popular culture. I think that uh, that at the point in our lives, and I'm going to veer into psychology here, which I have no business doing, but... Um, it just strikes me that at the point of our lives, we're kind of defining ourselves, that in our teen years and maybe up into the early, our early 20s, um, you know, we're looking everywhere to figure out who we, who we really are. Um, and we're going out and we're finding, like, new groups of friends, we're doing new activities, and we're consuming new kinds of media, all in a way of trying to figure out, like, who am I actually? And so as part of that process, and again, getting to a period of time where fewer had, people had fewer media options, and the media they had broadcast at a set time, and it was harder to watch, stack up a bunch of shows and binge watch them, <laughs> um, that, uh, that then, you know, so they're kind of limited to what's on television, and so for people who grow up in a certain era, they're always kind of themselves nostalgic for what was on there, even though Chico and the Man is straight up racist. Mm-hmm. It's so bad. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's it, so horrible. Uh-huh. Um, so, I, mean, I didn't yeah, so, think so at the time, but yeah. Oh my gosh, it like, does oh. not hold up. No, you re- it's just it's cringeworthy. It was a really popular. It was show, a very that yeah. uh, I still I I will have I will like wake up in the morning with a theme song going through my head. <laughs> you know, it's a very popular. Jose show. Feliciano, right? Yeah, yeah. but um, well, and the the fact that all of these newer shows really are showcasing the lack of diversity in regular television, I think, goes to show just how television hasn't been able to adapt and diversify over time. Well, Empire, cons- though, is, is a Empire, largely black yeah. cast show. Is that with, um, 
Yes. yes. I haven't seen it, but it's super popular. <laughs> it is. It, yes. it won some Emmys, I think, didn't it? Or mm-hmm. at least it was nominated. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's uh, Terrence Howard, I think, is the star of that. I think so. Yeah. Yep. So, um, yeah. So, there. I mean, there's some... You know, there's some amount of diversity on, on television. Yeah, it's something television uh, television kind of grapples with. It's something I think also kind of comes in waves, um, and then it kind of kind of ebbs and sort of comes back around later. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know, a generation of people who are like in their teens and twenties, teens and early twenties now, um, you know, will look back and I'm not going to speculate how old people are around this table, some number of years, <laughs> um, and uh, and 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 talk about uh, the uh, the great shows, uh, uh, times watching. Uh, Big Bang Theory as this really important TV show for them uh, and something that they always want to have. All right. Okay, now it's time for Trivial Observations with Mark. Okay, and as always, we try to stick with the theme of the episode. Uh, so today's trivia comes courtesy from an article entitled Nostalgic Facts About Happy Days <laughs> by Kara Kowalczyk in a July 17, 2015 issue of Mental Floss. The pilot episode of Happy Days, written by Gary Marshall, revolved around the purchase of what item, which was the first purchase of its kind in the neighborhood? I'm going to guess television. Yeah, I'm going to guess television. <laughs> we usually like to start uh, easy with uh, uh, trivia questions and move on from there. It was indeed a television. Uh-huh. Right, good job. That pilot episode actually did not initially get picked up by any network, but it became a vignette on what other television show that was running at the time. Love American Style. Very good. Really? And for extra trivia huh. points, do you remember the title? That Love and the Happy Day. Excellent. <laughs> Very good. All right, this is going to be too easy for Jonathan. But, uh, we'll, we'll keep going anyway. What 1973 film by George Lucas is widely credited with in- eventually influencing ABC executives to give Happy Days a try? American, American Graffiti. graffiti. Oh, all right. <laughs> Let's all say it together. <laughs> a, a quick note about the difference in tone from Happy Days to American yeah. Graffiti. Yeah, I mean, uh, American Graffiti is a little more, it's a little more bittersweet. Uh-huh. I mean, the, the soundtrack is there. The soundtrack is, like, more prominent, I think, in some ways than it is on Happy Days. There's a lot yeah. more music from the era in the film. Um, and it's also, um, I, I think, in, in the film, it's more... It's more of a period piece that that George Lucas captures more of the more of like how people related to each other in the 1950s than Gary Marshall did in Happy Days. That that uh, and, but I, but also the early episodes of Happy Days are darker than the later ones. Uh, the, so like the like you mentioned kind of like the 74 75 season. Yeah. Um, those are more. They're like more subtle. They're they're not as the people are not acting as much as like goofy seventies people. Sure, it's more like the fifties, and I think those early seasons are more like American Graffiti. Also, Happy Days took a while to take off. Seventy four, seventy five. It was not a big hit out of the gate. It was like nineteen seventy six. I want to say is where it really like broke out and became this monster hit. So ABC kind of was patient with it for a couple of years while it built a following. And maybe it built a following by being like less true to the fifties. Mm-hmm. So that's early Happy true. Days is kind of in the same vein as American Graffiti, um, but I think that's the main difference. 
Ron Howard originally was not interested in being in a series since he had recently enrolled in uh, University of Southern California's uh, School of Cinema, which he finished later. But according to him, what was the major reason he ended up signing on? Whoa. Gosh. Uh, I have no idea. Even though he didn't need to, as it turned out, um, one of the reasons he said was to avoid the Vietnam War. Apparently there was a stipulation that people could get an occupational deferment if their occupation was directly related to the employment of 30 or more people. Huh. Um, this makes absolutely no sense. No sense. Okay. <laughs> no sense at all. No. Because the... Um, I mean, the draft went away and it after well, yes, 1971. Exactly. Yeah, it's yes. late. So, which uh, the 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 follow up to that was that Ron Howard was told this after he signed on mm. that uh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So I mean, unless the show is unless the show is actually in development before American Maybe Graffiti was, came out, yeah. it, it was not. Sometimes it happens. was as, yeah. it, it was as you said. Um, it was a, a reason that he did not have to. Um, do, yeah, you know, no. So, so right, the, the draft wasn't a thing anymore. So yeah, he just had to like not enlist, and he wouldn't have to. And furthermore, uh, the U.S. started drawing down its troops in Vietnam in '71, mm-hmm. and pretty much everyone was out of there by '73. So the time, you know, even if Happy Days yeah. debuted like in fall of '74, by that point, there's like the last few like Marines and uh, advisors and CIA and so forth. Yeah. So, yeah, nobody's being sent to Vietnam in 1974. Point, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so that's that's just odd. What personal issue made it difficult for Henry Winkler to audition for Fonzie? I know that. He was dyslexic. Correct. Oh. Yes. Wow. Awesome. Harry Winkler has a very interesting life. Just, yeah, just read the Wikipedia article. Or, I think he even has a book, but yeah, he was a very interesting person. He was given audition reading, which he had difficulty with, mm-hmm. so he ad-libbed, but they liked what he did with sure. the ad-lib. And, um, yeah. And uh, daughter's a UW grad. And yes. his daughter's a UW grad. A few yeah. years there, maybe in the early part of the century, There'd be like Henry Winkler sightings on State Street. He's right. come in, yes. takes his daughter out to dinner, and takes some of her friends. And, yeah. and he went to uh, UW football games um, mm-hmm. as well, too. So, yeah, fond memories of the, the Fonz. <laughs> Finally, to wrap it up, uh, what recurring actor from Happy Days and think later seasons spoke on stage on Donald Trump's behalf at the 2016 <laughs> Republican National Convention? I'm count three. Scott Theo. All right. All right. Uh, so the trivial observation to conclude, um, a 1970s spinoff show from Happy Days was uh, obviously Laverne and Shirley. One of my personal favorite episodes from Laverne and Shirley involved the character Lenny becoming very distraught when his beloved jacket, which was supposed to read Lone Wolf, on the back um, lost its L and now read One Wolf. Uh, He was very upset about it because he wanted to be unique. He wanted to be a a lone wolf, but he was just one wolf like everybody. (laughs) And uh, Laverne saves the day by kindly sewing on one of her beloved L monograms to his jacket to give him his identity back. (laughs) And this is really dopey, but uh, this is how I'm going to conclude. Hopefully through our creator studio here, through our (laughs) eclectic library collection, through personalized service, in some small way, we encourage our students to be a lone wolf rather than being an anonymous one wolf among mm-hmm. the pack. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. Great. That's great. 
Great. Okay, so our next segment is our Anything Goes recommendations. Uh, so my recommendation uh, for this week, um, it's I'm a big fan of creative nonfiction, and I've been in... Um, I haven't really read a creative nonfiction that I've enjoyed for a while, but I am currently reading Killers of the Flower Moon by David Gran. Um, it's uh, one of the nominees for the 2017 National Book Award for Nonfiction. And uh, he was also the author of The Lost City of Z, but I'm really enjoying Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, it's set in the 1920s in the Osage um, Indian Territory of Northeast Oklahoma. And they, on their territory, they discovered oil. And for a period of time, were doing pretty well uh, when they were being treated fairly. And uh, then they started not to be treated as fairly. And even worse, uh, a series of murders started to happen. On, And I'm not sure how familiar you are. It's an interesting um, look at how we reinvent history. Um, and kind of brush over things. Well, I'm next, and since we're t this is about television, uh, my favorite show this season has been The Orville. And um, it's basically Star Trek with jokes. Um, and uh, just if you're not a fan of Seth MacFarlane, um, just give this one a try. I, I think you'll like it. The premise is he is the captain of, uh, of the, the Orville. And his uh, first mate is his ex-wife, which, okay, that, that's pretty great. <laughs> it's very funny. Anyway, and he has a crew of, uh, there's some humans and non-humans, and uh, which is interesting, sets up for interesting backstories. And um, they embark on various diplomatic and explorator exploratory missions. And uh, there's some really great sci-fi in there, too. I'm very entertained by it. And some of the... Uh, the episodes don't have this really nice, nice tidy closure. They, they kind of leave questions hanging. And my favorite episode, this so far, has been episode three. It's called About a Girl. Oh, and right. it's, it's not the typical Seth MacFarlane no, total. Um, no, it's not. Joke, he, so. He's very, uh, you know, he's a very earnest uh, character. And kind of the, uh, his best friend, who's, uh, who's the pilot, I guess, he's kind of the jokester and the yeah. prankster and... Um, but anyway, I, I think it's a lot of fun. Okay, um, I'm not a big TV person, um, so I don't have a TV recommendation, but my recommendation is um, your local YMCA. <laughs> <laughs> I've uh, been going, I guess it was January of this year that we started uh, for the third time a membership, but <laughs> we were actually able to uh, keep up with it this time, and it's just great to get out of the house. We have young kids, and they've got a little place where you can mm. take your kids and they'll watch them for you while oh, you nice. go sit in the hot tub or <laughs> do a yoga class or workout or something. Anyways, um, it's a really great resource, and I run into faculty from right. MATC all the time, which is fun, and uh, um, we've all really been enjoying it. Well, I'm very intergenerational, too. I feel like whenever I go to the YMCA, you mm -hmm. see you know, folks from all different backgrounds. Yeah. Um, so my recommendation today... Um, I think we've talked about how I tend not to read nonfiction books, but I just am reading one that I actually enjoy. Um, it's called Ornament of the World by Menakal, and it, I'm taking a class at UW on Islamic art. Um, I might have been telling a few people around this table about, um, but it talks about a period in time in Spain where there were really three large religious influences, um, 
and kind of their cultural interaction um, and how they created different um, bonds or sometimes ganged up against each other um, and how it influenced both art um, and politics, music, po uh, poetry. Um, really good book and very accessible. You don't necessarily, you don't have to have a history background to enjoy it. Right. Cool. Excellent. Uh, and uh, I'd like to, I guess, close this segment out with a restaurant recommendation. Oh, great. Um, I'm a huge fan of Om Indian Fusion, which yes. is oh, yes. right up here at <laughs> uh, Highway 51 and Eastwash. Um, it's my favorite Indian restaurant in the city. Um, I've taken people here from out of town to go there because oh, okay. I just, I think it's, it's, I mean, it's a former Shakey's Pizza. Right. It's like next to a laundromat. So it's kind of hard to get to. You have to approach it off the service drive. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's in kind of a tucked away. It's kind of an out-of-the-way place. Uh, but I, just, I think they do a fantastic job. It's the best Indian buffet in the city, hands down. The food is fresh. They've got a ton of vegetarian items. Yeah. I would um, definitely agree. Yeah. yeah. Not, it's like not everything is covered in like a, some kind of heavy gravy sort of situation. Right. <laughs> it's like spicy and with different kind of spices than you usually get. So, yeah, it is just, it is the greatest. Yeah. I, I love coming And they there. have the, the Chinese Indian that, It's the best. I love it. I love yeah. that yeah. one. The Indo-Chinese yeah. menu. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that, I always get something thing. from that. Yeah, yep. and the samosas are the best. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Great. Okay, well, it looks like that wraps up things for us today. Thank you, Jonathan, for being our guest, and you're welcome back anytime. Thanks for the invite. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> and thank you all for listening to the Overdue Podcast. This has been a production of Madison College Library's Creator Studio. <laughs>